1: It's Friday, March 21st, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney.
2: And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters.
1: You can find us online at climatedesk.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at InquiringShow, and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast.
2: This was a big week in science, like Higgs boson big, if not even bigger. People are already talking about the scientists who discovered or have shown proof of gravitational waves from the images of the BICEP2 telescope in Antarctica. So these data are actually the first direct evidence that the theory of inflation that describes what happened just after the Big Bang is exactly right. In order to help us navigate through the data and the complicated ideas that are coming out of these data, we invited Phil Plait, who's also known as the bad astronomer. He's an astronomer, a skeptic, a popular science blogger, and the author of two books, one called Bad Astronomy and another called Death from the Skies, that enumerates all the things in the skies that could harm us in different ways. So this discovery has been all over the news and some people oversimplify it and some people talk about it as being incredibly complex and of course we need both sides of of the coin in order to really grasp the importance of this finding. So if you first read about these results and you don't know anything about the fundamental questions in experimental or theoretical physics, it's hard to see how really relevant or how big this discovery is. So we need someone who can take us through those models and through the implications of these data in order to grasp the significance of the discovery. And that's really a great strength of Phil's. So he's able to show us and to put into context the discovery of gravitational waves from bicep two. And here's a clip of him doing just that.
0: Anytime you study the universe as a whole, anytime you're looking at the history of it and trying to figure out how it got from basically point A to point B, you're filling in pieces of a puzzle. And it really is like a jigsaw puzzle. You have a lot of individual pieces. Some individual pieces have distinctive characteristics on them and some don't. And as you put them together, You start to see the overall picture. And even before it's completed, you can look at it and say, oh, it's a waterfall, you know, or something like that. In this case, that's what's happening. We have a lot of pieces of the puzzle of what the universe is. Some of the places, we're filling it in pretty well. Other places, we've got sort of the, you know, we've got the border pieces around it. We know that, you know, over here is where dark matter is. Over here is dark energy. Over here is inflation. But we still have a lot of area to fill in with the pieces laying around.
1: So yeah, this is complicated stuff. And a lot of people, when this finding was announced, they're like, whoa, new evidence of the Big Bang. And of course, it's not actually evidence you know, of the Big Bang. It's evidence of what happened in this teeny, teeny fraction of time right after the Big Bang. But listening to Phil, he really makes it make sense. And it also makes you feel, wow, we are living in a time when we're really starting to unlock nature's secrets, the universe's secrets. I think it's a great time to be a cosmologist.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, every time there's a major discovery, people have that same feeling, right? That's probably what they thought in the 1500s too. Um, But I also think that there is a danger of either oversimplifying or just getting the science wrong um, when it has, when something, a discovery like this has so much media attention. And you're right, I've already read people simplifying it to, hey, proof of the Big Bang, finally. Um, But of course, the cosmic microwave background radiation has already been proof of the Big Bang, as it were. And now we're kind of filling in the details of what happened afterwards, which in some ways is even more interesting because it really tells us directly how matter came into being. Um, so, you know, I think that, that we have to be careful when we're talking about these major discoveries to remain true to the science, um, but still also get into the implication and why these scientists and these physicists and and so on are so excited about it.
1: And that's why we need popular science communicators like Phil, and we'll hear more of him in a bit, you know, just really, really manage to give you all that and not make your head spin in the way that modern physics really, really can make your head spin. That's right. So that'll be our interview for today. But first, uh, let's cover some goings on in the world of science. So I've been reporting on Global Warming a decade. And once I understood this topic, more and more, it seemed to me that what it really all came down to, or what really a lot of it came down to, was what happens to Greenland. Because what happens to Greenland doesn't stay in Greenland. This is this massive northern ice sheet contains enough water, if it all melted, to raise the global sea level 23 feet. There are places on the Greenland ice sheet, or of the Greenland ice sheet, where you have ice three miles thick. One estimate is that overall, Greenland is comprised of 680,000 cubic miles of ice. Okay, And we already know that the glaciers there are receding, and it's basically dumping ice and melted water into the ocean and contributing to sea level rise. But get this, scientists thought that the northeastern part of Greenland was pretty stable because it's very cold there. But now we have to think again. A new study in nature, climate change, finds that the glaciers of northeast Greenland have started to melt too, and they are calving into the water. One of these glaciers called the Zachary, if I'm saying that right, Zachary Glacier has actually retreated more than 12 miles in just a decade. And this is a huge deal because northeastern Greenland's glaciers have, according to the the website Climate Central, quote, much deeper ties to the interior ice sheet than other glaciers on the island. So to lose them to the sea is, in effect, to awaken the sleeping giant. As one Greenland researcher, Jason Box, has put it. Now, the climate models didn't predict this occurrence. Nobody was expecting this ice in northeast Greenland to turn into water. So soon. But along comes the research, says it's already happening. So lo and behold, sea level rise might once again have been underpredicted, underestimated, and I don't even need to say what the consequences of that could be.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's really scary. It seems like every couple of months we have another major climate change issue. And... You know, I I guess I don't know to what extent the models overpredict and things that don't happen, um, but it does seem like every time it's in the news, the models have just not gone far enough.
1: Well, in this case, this is they're modeling the dynamics of ice sheets, and that's a complicated affair. And my, based on my reporting, there's long been a sense among experts that we might be underestimating how quickly and how dynamically... Ice sheets giant ice sheets can change, and once a process process gets going, it can happen really fast and that's what everybody's sort of afraid of in the climate system is losing an ice sheet much faster than any model said that you could and so that's sort of the subtext behind this new finding is that okay, w- the models might have been a little bit too optimistic, a lot's been happening here. we didn't know that it was going to be happening this fast, and everybody's like, Whoa, uh, what does that mean and ugh, Uh, You know, the big the big issue is will climate change surprise us to the to the to the upside or the downside or, you know, to the to the more warming and more consequences versus less warming and less consequences. This is one of those stories that says more warming, more consequences.
2: Well, hopefully we'll start to see some of this being affecting policy very soon because it does feel like we're almost too late to the party.
1: Yes, unfortunately so.
2: So that's some bad news in the climate. And some of you might have gotten some recent bad news in the sports world if you've picked the wrong team in your office pool for the NCAA championships. So we know basketball's... um College basketball is in the news in the next couple of weeks as we get into the championships and people are betting on their favorite teams and so on. So I wanted to talk a little bit about a phenomenon that seemed to be very popular in basketball, but was debunked by psychologists for the last 30 years. And that is the hot hand. The idea that a player can get hot when he starts making shots and that that makes it more likely that he will make his next shot, uh, than would be predicted by his own statistics. So, for for thirty years, psychologists have said there's no such thing when you actually look at the data, people are not any more likely to make those next shots um, and the hot hand doesn't exist. But just recently at the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference at MIT, it's it's a annual convention of people who are really interested in the statistics of sports three recent Harvard graduates say that they might have discovered that the hot hand does exist and that the way psychologists have been studying it has just been wrong. So these three students, or graduates, I should say, Andrew Bokskoski, it's a mouthful, John Ezekowitz and Carolyn Stein, looked at not only the percentage of shots that people make once they've you know, once they've started making shots in a row, but also the difficulty with which those shots are taken. So up until now people have just assumed, well, if you've got a hot hand, say you're you've you know you've you've made a bunch of layups, then you're likely just to make another set of layups or or et cetera. But it turns out that if you feel as though you've got a hot hand, then you might be more likely to take the more difficult shot, you know, to become a little cocky and shoot when maybe you wouldn't have in the past. And so you know, those shots are more difficult, so we need to incorporate this variable of difficulty if we're trying to analyze the hot hand. So, when they controlled for difficulty, they actually did find a small but significant increase in in the likelihood that a person will make their next shot once they have what they call a complex hot hand. So, maybe the hot hand actually does exist.
1: Does exist, but I was looking at this, and at least as reported by the Wall Street Journal, what they're finding is that uh, you're, I'm quoting from the story, you're 1.2 to 2.4 percentage points more likely to make your next shot if you've made several in a row. I mean, that's not much. That's not what the player who thinks he or she is hot is actually thinking. They're thinking, I can't miss. right? So <laughs> they're still maybe a little bit, um, I don't want to say diluted but they might s- still be not understanding what's going on.
2: Yeah. And so I actually went to the original paper and read it. And you're exactly right. It's a tiny effect. In fact, so tiny that I would argue it's probably insignificant, even though according to their statistics, which are a little bit complicated and a little bit outside the realm of what I would do if, as a psychologist. Um, so it's hard for me to really evaluate them. Um, uh, but you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty small effect size and, and they admit it's a small effect size. So, you know, if it, if it means that that, player is making decisions on the basis of such a small effect size, well, you know, they might be a little bit risky. But what I thought was really interesting is that they did realize that players are taking more risks when they feel that they have a hot hand. Um, so that needs to be considered if you're a coach, um, or if you're a sideline coach, and watching the games, you know, you don't want your your uh, players to get too cocky um, once they feel that they have a hot hand.
1: Yeah, that will explain why these streaks are never going to last all that long, <laughs> based on these statistics. So, but my question is, is this right? I mean, if if there actually is even some small hot hand effect, what is it, right? I mean, how what's going on? Is there some some sort of intuition that actually makes you temporarily a better player? What, what could that be? It's hard for me to conceptualize that.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it's hard to tell unless we can, you know, really hook up a lot of different measures, um, sort of biometric measures to the players. I mean, I would guess, and this is total speculation, that when you feel as though you have a hot hand, you've made a few in a row, you get a little bit of confidence. So maybe your performance anxiety goes down a little bit, you know, which creates some kind of autonomic nervous system effect that maybe makes it less likely that you're going to be, um, you know, that you're going to be tense. And so that looseness is what makes it more likely that you're going to make your next shot. Um, but that's total speculation. And in order to understand that, we'd actually need to hook people up with, you know, heart rate monitors and temperature gauges and all kinds of different biometrics. And yeah, you know, then we might actually find something away.
1: interesting. <laughs> you, wire, you wire the <laughs> players. They're not going to make anything.
2: Well, it's, you know, for science.
1: <laughs> yes, for science. I want to watch that game.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's take a short break. And in just a minute, we'll be back with my interview with Phil Plate.
1: This is Inquiring Minds producer Adam Isaac. Six months ago yesterday, we launched this podcast. Since then, 26 episodes later, you've downloaded us over 750,000 times. When we started the show, we didn't really know what to expect, but the reaction has seriously blown us away. It really does mean a lot to us that you continue to listen, and it shows, I think, that there are plenty of us out there who care about science and its impact on the world. We don't just do this show because it's fun and we get to talk to smart people, though that doesn't hurt things. We try to cover things that are important, and we hope that shows. From all three of us, thank you so much for listening, and we really hope you stick around because the way we see it, we are just getting started.
2: Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Phil Plate. Hey, thanks for having me on. So I first want to ask you what maybe a lot of us out there are wondering. What is the difference between a cosmologist and an astronomer?
0: Well, a cosmologist is the person who takes care of your makeup, and an astronomer gives you your horoscope. I think that's the, <laughs> the actual difference. Uh, yeah, there are a lot of different you know, versions of people who study the sky. So an astronomer is sort of a generic term for anybody who does that. An astrophysicist uh, is a little different. That's somebody who actually applies the physics and all of that to what is seen in the sky. And then you have a cosmologist, which is someone who studies the universe as a whole. In other words, uh, it's not just looking at the universe. You're actually studying how it began, how it's changed over time, what's going to happen to it in the future.
2: And so your background is in astronomy. Yes. So what drew you to study the skies? Uh, Wow. <laughs> Basically,
0: the skies themselves. I just think that... Uh, it's an amazing, well, okay, as an adult, I look back on it now, and it's obvious, right? It's just uh, an amazing thing. It's, it's all of the, the beauty and, and the astonishing events that are going on, stars being born, stars dying, planets swirling around their stars, galaxies moving around, the universe itself, everything about it is phenomenal, and you, you're dealing with the biggest questions that humanity has ever tackled, literally, how did we get here? Where are we going? What's our place in the universe? These are the biggest questions we have, and astronomy is the way to answer them. Well, or at least uh, a, way, a way to tackle them, a way to approach them. And uh, by, by applying the math and physics, and certainly the philosophy that we deal with in astronomy, we are attempting to tackle those questions. Now, when I was a kid, you know, this stuff is just cool, right? It's beautiful. I saw Saturn through a telescope for the first time and I was hooked. And there's still that that draw, that that compulsion to, to look through a telescope, to examine the gorgeous pictures. And for me, that's, you know, that, that appeals to the artistic nature of the brain. And that's just as big a deal as tackling these big philosophical questions.
2: And the interesting thing is that, of course, now we know that what you're looking at in the sky is something that happened a very long time ago because it takes so long for that light to reach us. And so this week we have an even greater distance that we have covered in terms of time with this new discovery by Bicep two. So, tell me a little bit about what Bicep two has discovered and its significance.
0: Yeah, a little bit. Uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> this This story is very interesting. Very cool but also really complex. You know, We're at the stage now of cosmology where we're not really guessing so much anymore. We're making detailed measurements, and it turns out the universe is very complex, very complicated, and to even understand where to, where to go with some of these new discoveries means you need a lot of background information. It's not like we found a new planet that's about the size of the Earth. You know, You can explain that quite simply. When you're talking about cosmology a lot of the times it's a little bit a little bit over the top so let me give this a shot now we've known for roughly a century that the universe is expanding and that means that things are getting farther away from us all the time well you can you can turn the clock backwards and let it go uh into the past and what that tells you if the universe is getting bigger now in the past it must have been smaller and at some point the universe must have been all compressed into a single point. And we call that moment when that happened the Big Bang. And it, it, that's a colloquialism. It's not the most accurate description, but hey, let's go with it right now. It's, it's, a, it's an easy way to remember that. Now, it turns out that happened about 13.8 billion years ago. And we can, we can study by looking at the universe now, looking at the chemical compositions of stars, the arrangements of galaxies. We can understand a lot about what happened in the universe very early on because that's when a lot of this stuff first got its start. It's kind of like studying a baby right after birth and saying, Oh, you know, it's this kind of, this kind of human being and, and what their health situation is. That's that sort of thing. And you can extrapolate into the future. Well, in this case, we can extrapolate into the past. Well, astronomy does us a big favor. Telescopes are time machines because the speed of light is finite. Something really, really far away gives off light, and that light takes a really, really long time to get to us. So the farther away we see something, the further back in time we're looking. Now, in this case, we're looking at light left over from the Big Bang that was basically created a few hundred thousand years after the moment itself. But that light has the imprint of earlier times on it. That's what this big discovery is. We know, or we thought for a long time, that right after the Big Bang, and I mean the tiniest fraction of a second after the Big Bang, the universe underwent this sort of hyper-expansion, this tremendously accelerated expansion. We call it inflation. And this was brought up for a lot of reasons. It explained a lot of stuff, but we didn't have direct evidence for it. One of the predictions of inflation was, when the universe expanded rapidly, we'd be able to see some of the effects of that on this background light that we see that was created hundreds of thousands of years later. One of these things that was predicted were these things called gravitational waves, which is literally an expansion and contraction of space itself, kind of like a, a wave moving down a slinky. And this would leave its imprint on that light in the form of, I, and I, yeah, I hope you're following all this. Oh, right? yeah,
2: it's great. <laughs> it's in the
0: form of what's called polarization. And that's just basically sort of changing the way the light moves through space. And this has been predicted for a long time. It was a very specific type of polarization that was predicted. There are different kinds, different flavors of it. And what BICEP2 did uh, in Antarctica was look for this particular kind of polarization. And it took three years. They had to do a huge amount of analysis on this data. And basically, the, the, to skip to the end after all this, uh, is that they found it? Uh, the the polarization signal was there. It was strong. It was stronger than they expected. But it was pretty much just like the uh, predictions of inflation had said. Which means that we now have direct evidence after the fact, not not before the fact. Not you know we came up with the idea of, of inflation to explain some things. Now it made predictions. These predictions have been verified. At least one of them has. And we can actually investigate. The conditions of the universe as it was literally 10 to the minus 35 seconds after it was born. So whatever fraction of a second that is numbers, one trillion, 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 trillionth. Um, and that's only a factor of, that's 48. So I probably got that wrong. But you know what I mean? It's like a trillion, trillion, trillionth. That's 36. So, <laughs> Don't you love doing math on the fly? So it's a uh, trillion, trillion would be 24, a millionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a thousandth of a second there. I think, I think that's the, 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 the math of working that out as I'm actually speaking. So there you go.
2: So one of the things that's really troubled me with this, with this discovery is the time aspect. I mean, you know, we're talking about scales that are almost unfathomable and yet we're able to look at this radiation or, or, uh, what would you call it? This, the signature, um, for years, but it's, so how, how is it that it it isn't just as fleeting as the beginning of time?
0: That's a good question. And it comes up because these, these concepts are troubling. They're very difficult for us to wrap our heads around. We are, uh, and stop me if you've heard this before, you know, barely evolved apes. And, you know, we're used to conditions that are slow moving and local. In other words, uh, you know things that we've evolved to to inhabit a planet where we don't have to deal with the speed of light very much. We don't have to deal with things that are 13.82 billion years old very much. And we've only recently developed the math and the science to be able to handle this sort of thing. So it's not intuitive to us how this all works. That makes this difficult. It really does. And I don't you know I have a problem sometimes uh wrestling with this and I, I'm not surprised at all that, that others do as well. The bottom line is because light travels at a finite speed, when these events happened, the universe was expanding. And so that light is sort of catching up with the expansion of the universe over time. Here we are 13.8 billion years later, and we're surrounded by this background glow, this sort of leftover heat from the Big Bang itself. And it's everywhere we look. And that's that's a weird geometric thing that's going on. It's difficult for us to grasp, but... No matter what direction we look at, we're looking into the past. So we're looking towards that event, if you want to think of it that way. If the universe weren't expanding, then yeah, those photons from 13.8 billion years ago would have passed us by or bounced around or whatever billions of years ago. But because we're expanding, it takes time for them to catch up to us, and we're only seeing them now. That's why we can do this. And the event that we're talking about here, this, this inflation, that only lasted for the tiniest fraction of a second. Um, It's not that we're seeing that itself. We are seeing the imprint it left on the light that was surrounding it. That's what we've detected. It's it's like seeing a footprint in the sand or a thumbprint on a piece of glass. That is the evidence that we're detecting.
2: But if it's the Big Bang, there was nothing there to begin with. So what could it have imprinted on?
0: Everything that was there. (laughs) How How do you like that? hope you're all sitting down for this. This really is uh, a difficult, like I said, it's a very difficult concept. Um, The Big Bang, uh, there are a lot of misconceptions about it. One of them is that, and, and this is reinforced over and over again in television and pictures and all that, is that it was an explosion. You see sort of fire and material shooting out from a point in space and heading outward. And that's, That's not really right, because the Big Bang was not an explosion into space. There there wasn't space there. The Big Bang itself created space, created time. There was no space. There was no time before this. So it wasn't an explosion into space. It was an explosion of space. Think of it as the creation of a little wad of space, basically, a little crumpled up thing, that then began to expand and unravel and got bigger and bigger and bigger. It's not expanding into anything. It itself is just getting bigger. A better way to think of it, and, and this gets very complicated, when you look at the math, sometimes that helps your intuition with it. A better way to think of it is not that it's getting bigger, is that points between objects are getting larger. So in other words, the the, the space between things is expanding so that when I look at some distant galaxy, it's not that that galaxy is flying away. It's not that the universe is expanding into something and, and drawing that galaxy away. It's that there's literally more space between us than there was yesterday and the day before. And there's just more space all the time. So when you talk about the Big Bang, that's really what's happening. The, the inflation that happened happened after that moment of creation, if you will, and so it left its imprint on all of that material, all of that light, all of that energy. And as the universe has expanded and cooled, we see the remnants of that today.
2: So that's one of the criticisms that I've heard of the Fox show Cosmos, of course, uh, that when Neil deGrasse Tyson was describing the big bang, there were all of these explosions. And as, as you describe it's that's not how it happened at all.
0: Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to be careful here because, uh, when, you, when you're dealing with something like this, you have to show it somehow. I understand that. You know, there's an artistic license to this. And if you want to actually dig into the actual bits that are going on here, it gets very complicated, very complex, very quickly. And it's, it's not straightforward in a TV show or, for example, on a, on a blog post to show an image or a video of this thing happening. So I do understand that shortcut of showing an explosion. I complain about it because I don't like it, but uh, I have to kind of live with it. For years, astronomers in the science communication and, and outreach game have tried to come up with some better way of showing this. And short of just not showing it as an explosion, I don't know what to do because it's just, it's really that hard to show.
2: Well, I do like your analogy of, of you know, or the the fact that it's the space that's increasing. So, you know, we could just take away the, the fiery bits and just show that kind of an expansion.
0: You could. Um, in, in the case of Cosmos in the first episode, they weren't really talking about that aspect of it. They were talking more about the birth of the universe uh, and then cutting to to other things. If you want to deal with the expansion of the universe, it's... It's something that you really kind of need to do carefully. If you're going to do it so carefully that you don't want to introduce more misconceptions than you're getting rid of, you have to take some time. I mean, even here, me talking to you about this uh, is, is, you know, I'm waving my arms. You can't see that. I can, I can make waving arm noises into my microphone. Um, without a visual connection to this, it's very difficult. Um, even verbally, even on paper, it takes a lot of words. And it's a lot of very unfamiliar concepts. We just don't deal with this stuff in our puny little brains terribly well. And that makes this very difficult to swallow. You know, I'm not surprised there are people who doubt the Big Bang happened because uh, we don't necessarily buy into extremely complex explanations for things that should seem simple. And it turns out, you know what? The universe is under no obligation to be simple to us. It's actually a very complex place where all the pieces interact, and there are a lot of pieces. So it's it's hard to describe physically and mathematically, and even just you know sitting on a radio show.
2: So this discovery has also been touted as showing that certain theories about the Big Bang are now incorrect, or at least are not supported by this latest evidence. So What is it that we're able to eliminate based on the evidence of finding these gravitational waves?
0: Uh, You you know, you'd have to ask a a fairly high-powered cosmologist if you want details on that. Because at this point, you're talking about splitting between theories or hypotheses, ideas, models of the universe that are extremely complex. One of the things, to to give you sort of a, a very general idea of this, is... Uh, I, first of all, I want to separate out the Big Bang and inflation. Inflation happened after the moment of the Big Bang. And, and a lot of people are, are touting this as proof of the Big Bang. And it's like, folks, we've had proof of the Big Bang for a long time, uh, years and years and years. We've had tons and tons of evidence for it. Uh, this is not really proof of the Big Bang. This is showing evidence of something that happened just after it. And it's a key moment in the universe because this inflation that happened expanded the universe hugely. The universe was probably pretty lumpy right before this. There were clumps of matter, clumps of energy in some places and big voids in other places. And what inflation did is it spread the universe out so rapidly that it got very, very smooth. And we thought the universe should look lumpy, but when we looked at it, it's not. When we look at the very early universe, it's actually very smooth. Inflation sort of Cleaned that up. It it told us why that happened. That's why this was proposed in the first place. But why did inflation happen? Well, we had a lot of ideas of that too, and they have to do with a lot of different quantum mechanics, a lot of different what are called uh, field theories, very complex stuff. Uh, And there because because there wasn't any direct evidence of inflation, we just sort of see its effects afterwards. There were a lot of different ideas of why it came into existence, and they would predict different things. The amount of polarization, for example, that they would predict imprinted on this universal background would be different. It would have a different shape. It would have a different size. There would be other effects. Well, until we had this evidence, we didn't know what was going on. And it turns out, well, now we do. We understand, or at least we see, how much this polarization is changing the light coming from the the Big Bang. And that's helping us uh, delineate between these different models.
2: So you could say that people who are going to be studying this moving forward are going to look at the patterns in those waves uh, to sort of guide their theories.
0: That's it precisely. Um, polarization, there's a lot of different ways of doing it. Uh, in fact, you deal with polarization all the time when you put on sunglasses. When, when light hits, sunlight hits the Earth's atmosphere, it doesn't just blow off in every direction. The, the waves of the electromagnetic waves, which is what light is, they get lined up. It's kind of like uh, uh, light moving through a picket fence, and if it's moving up and down, it can get between the slats. And if it's moving side to side, it can't. That's what polarization is. That's one type of polarization. There are different types, and this type of polarization that we're talking about here is actually a twisting. It's a curling of the light of the basically the electromagnetic vector of the light waves, if you want to be a little bit more technical. That's what they're studying. and, and the amount of this twisting and, and over what scale on the sky that this thing is, is showing itself. That's what's going to be used to be able to differentiate between the different theories of inflation.
2: So I've also read that this particular finding seems to bring the ideas of gravity and quantum mechanics a little bit closer together, at least with Einstein being touted as, as having been right all along. So can you describe a little bit about how, the, how quantum mechanics and gravity now seem to be more aligned?
0: Yeah, this is a pretty interesting and, if true, exceptionally profound piece of uh, of evidence that will tie relativity and quantum mechanics together. Now, these these are two of the most successful scientific theories of all time. Uh, relativity describes uh, gravity and mass and time and how they interact uh, on scales where things are moving very rapidly or where gravity is very intense. And we know it works. It's It's been shown to be successful over and over and over again. Quantum mechanics is, again, extremely successful. It is the theory of how subatomic particles interact, basically. We know this works because we have atomic weapons. We have atomic power. We have computers. Computers work on quantum mechanics. The problem is relativity and quantum mechanics on many scales don't talk to each other and don't play with each other well. You would predict one thing with relativity and another thing with quantum mechanics. And they, you know, we, we know both of these uh, ideas are right. And yet they predict different things, which is a a problem. We don't think that either of these things is wrong. We think that there may be some grander theory that is an umbrella that encompasses both of them, that when you look at it the right way, it's like, oh, I see. Now it turns out they were predicting the same thing. It's similar to uh, relativity and Newton's old mechanics, where you would predict the way a planet orbits a star using Newtonian mechanics, and you get a slightly different answer than you would with relativity. But it turns out, well, in relativity, you're, you're accounting for more factors than Newton doesn't. And when things are moving slowly, Newton's right. When things are moving rapidly, Einstein's right. Same thing going on here. So with that preface, quantum mechanics is, ba- is the basis of inflation. You're talking about fields and particles and all of that stuff that's in the realm of quantum mechanics. That's what sort of instigated inflation itself. What was generated by this event were what are called gravitational waves. And this is one of the predictions of relativity. We know these exist. Uh, uh, their effects have, have been seen in, in neutron stars out in space. A Nobel Prize has already been given to somebody for this. We've never seen them directly, but we know they're out there because we've seen their effects. So the uh, the evidence that we just found using BICEP2 is the, is the imprint of gravitational waves on the universal background. These gravitational waves were created when inflation occurred. Inflation occurred because of quantum mechanics. The gravitational waves occurred because of relativity, which means that relativity and quantum mechanics are connected Uh, somehow way back then when the universe was 10 to the minus 33 seconds years old. Now the idea is how were they connected? How do we get these two uh, theories to talk to each other better? And that's where uh, I think there is a big, big, big future in this field and studying this.
2: So there's another major mystery, though, that seems to remain. And that is, you know, what caused this expansion to begin with? And people point to dark energy, and and we know very little about dark energy. Is there anything from this discovery that might tell us a little bit more about what dark energy is and how it operates?
0: Beats me. Uh, I will, I'll just throw that right out there. Um, At that point, you are talking about incredibly sophisticated physics and uh, dark energy. Now, let me, let me put it this way. Dark energy was first discovered in 1998. It was first announced when two different teams of astronomers were looking at stars that were exploding uh, at very, very long distances away. And they found that um, they weren't at the distance they expected. It turns out what was basically happening was they were assuming that the universe was expanding at a constant rate. And it turns out the universe is actually expanding faster every day. It's accelerating. And we think that's because there's this mysterious substance called dark energy. Well, we don't know what it is. Um, there are a lot of things we, we understand it can't be. There were a lot of different proposed ideas for it when it first came out. And as we look at more supernovae, as we study the universe more, it's like, well, some of, these, some of these ideas don't work. But there are still quite a few that explain the data, but these ideas are still very different. And we're still trying to figure that out. Whatever dark energy is, fundamentally, we don't know. It's kind of like dark matter. We kind of know, you know dark matter is out there. It has gravity, but it doesn't interact with normal matter. It's, it's dark. That's why we call it that. But we don't know what it is. We have an idea of what it isn't. It's not black holes. It's not cold planets. It's not hydrogen. It's not normal matter. It's something different. When you, when you start going back into time and looking at things like inflation, Uh, this is actually before even the dark energy as we know it now got its teeth sunk into the fabric of space and time. This may be a totally different thing that happened. To answer the question, which I sometimes actually do, uh, once I take my time getting there, anytime you study the universe as a whole, anytime you're looking at the history of it and trying to figure out how it got from basically point A to point B, you're filling in pieces of a puzzle. And it really is like a jigsaw puzzle. You have a lot of individual pieces. Some individual pieces have distinctive characteristics on them and some don't. And as you put them together, you start to see the overall picture. And even before it's completed, you can look at it and say, oh, it's a waterfall, you know, or something like that. In this case, that's what's happening. We have a lot of pieces of the puzzle of what the universe is. Some of the places we're filling it in pretty well other places we've got sort of the you know we've got the border pieces around it we know that you know over here is where dark matter is over here is dark energy over here is inflation but we still have a lot of area to fill in with the pieces laying around and i'll tell you a lot of those pieces are still in the box we haven't discovered them yet we still have to pull them out and examine them but we have to find them first
2: so now that we've sort of got one more photograph of the very earliest part of time in our universe I want to switch to the very opposite end and ask you about how it's all going to end. So I've heard three different theories, all with, you know, really quite wonderful names, the big rip, the big crunch and the big freeze. (laughs) Um, Do you find any of these particularly compelling? And is there anything that we can learn from these gravitational waves that might tell us a little bit more about how it all will end?
0: The way the universe is going to end depends on basically what it's doing now and what it's done in the past. That's that's true of anything, right? If you, if you eat a lot of really greasy food all your life, we we kind of know how you're going to end or at least you know we can make a pretty good prediction on how that's going to turn out. It's the same sort of thing with the universe. Um if the universe had enough matter in it, uh then it could possibly have enough gravity to stop its own expansion. That expansion would then reverse. The universe would start to shrink. And then over time, get smaller and eventually collapse back down uh, into, a, into a big crunch. And that was the first of the ideas that you put out there. However, it turns out it's more complicated than that because we know now that the universal expansion is accelerating because of dark energy. Now, according to what we understand of this now, that means that the universe will expand ever faster in the future and it won't, it won't be able to slow down, stop and turn around and become a, a big crunch. So at the moment, the way we understand things, the big crunch is sort of out, of out of play. It's not gonna happen. So is it just going to expand forever? Well, yes, we think so. However, there are a couple of different ways dark energy could work. One of them is that it's a, basically, it's a component of the fabric of space and time itself. And the bigger space it gets, the more dark energy there is. And the more dark energy there is, the faster space expands. And the faster it expands, the more dark energy there is. And you can see that this won't end happily. The universe will expand so rapidly that it won't be able to stop itself. And it will tear itself apart. Literally, the fabric of space and time will disintegrate. Um, That's called the Big Rip. Uh, I don't think right now, the way uh, we understand dark energy, that's going to happen. But this is still early on in the game. So we don't really know. I'll say that. But it does seem more likely that dark energy is just a uh, a supply of stuff, like matter. There's a certain amount of matter in the universe. There's a certain amount of dark energy. Right now, it's sort of pushing on the universe, making it expand more rapidly every day. But what that means is, instead of tearing itself apart, the universe is just going to get bigger. And as time goes on, it's going to get cooler. Because uh, basically, you can treat it like a gas. And when a gas expands, it cools off. Um, 13 billion years ago, the universe was very hot. And now it isn't. It's, it's at about three degrees above absolute zero. Well, you know, in a trillion years, uh, there won't be any more stars. The gas in the universe will be used up. All the stars will be dead and the universe will get dark. And then there will be uh, long stretches of time where not a lot of interesting stuff happens. Eventually, even black holes will evaporate, we think. That's a very complicated quantum mechanic effect called Hawking radiation. Uh, Steve Hawking came up with that. Steve, like I know him. Stephen Hawking. Uh, came up with that, and you know in a Google year, something like that, ten to the one hundred years, even the black holes will evaporate, and there will just be nothing a uh, very thin, dark soup of material uh stretching on forever and that 's a little depressing maybe, but that's you know that 's the most uh the most likely outcome that I see
2: and so the time scales that you 're talking about here though are way, way, way way far out into the future. So far, in fact, that it seems like we're still kind of in the beginnings of the universal time.
0: Yes. And the biggest problem with any of this stuff is explaining scales to people. It's, it's understanding the scales, not, not just explaining to other people. Uh, even for those of us who think about this stuff all the time, the scales of this are difficult. And for example, inflation lasted from 10 to the minus 35 seconds to 10 to the minus 32 seconds basically after the Big Bang. And that's an incredibly tiny fraction of a second, 0.001 seconds after the Big Bang. And here we are 13 billion years later, and that seems like an incredibly short period of time. However, if you were in the universe at the moment inflation started and waited around for it to finish, the universe aged by a factor of 1,000 during that time. So if something like that were to happen today, 13 billion years after the Big Bang, it would last for tens of trillions of years, trillions of years. So inflation re- you know, really lasted a long time for the universe at that time. And so trying to think about these scales of when the stars are going to go out, when the universe itself is going to basically fade away, we're talking about times in the future of 10 to the 90, 10 to the 100 years from now, so far in the future that, in fact, the age of the universe now is just a tiny, tiny fraction of that. So small, we don't even have analogies for it. It's like comp- you can't even compare a nanosecond to the current age of the universe. Even that falls away short of the scales we're talking about. And our, our tiny little brains have a really hard time grasping that.
2: Yeah, my, my brain's starting to hurt a little bit. Um, and also, you know, it is comforting, though, to know that we still have a long way to go. And it's very likely that, in fact, humanity will be wiped out by something else way, 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 way earlier. So Yay. <laughs> I just want to end on that positive note, which is another pet topic of yours. Um, you know, and that is, are we actually going to end up being hit by a meteor? And is that how Earth, as we know it, is going to end?
0: Um, yes and no. How do you like that? <laughs> Perfect. Um, Okay, we're hit by a hundred tons of meteoric material every day, and that's usually in the form of dust or grains of sand or something around that size. Something bigger comes in more rarely. So, uh, in 2013, an object came in over Chelyabinsk, Russia, which was about 19 meters across, 60 feet, something like that. Those come in on average, mind you, not a, you know this isn't like clockwork, but on average, eh, every 20, 30 years, something bigger comes in, maybe every couple of hundred years. And something like a dinosaur killer you know, 10 kilometers across, six miles, every 100 million years, something like that. Uh, that will happen. Uh, we will get hit by a big rock if we do nothing about it. Uh, happily, we are starting to do something about it. We're building telescopes. We're looking for these things. The B612 Foundation is an organization that is investigating how to prevent asteroid impacts by launching rockets at them and hitting them basically with space probes and pushing them out of the way. There are a lot of ideas on how to do this. Uh, that, one's a, that one's a pretty good one, actually. And uh, if we take this seriously uh, in, in 20, 30 or 50 years, we could actually guarantee that we'll never get hit by something big enough to wipe out our civilization, which means that for the foreseeable future, as long as human beings have a space program, we can save our civilization.
2: Wow, that is the most hopeful explanation of that problem that I've ever heard. So thank you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, think it, well, I think it is hopeful. It, there, you know, asteroid impacts are scary. We need to take them seriously. But if we do take them seriously, it's like going to the doctor. You know, if you take your situation seriously, you can set up some preventative medicine and prevent hopefully something really bad happening down the line. We can do that and we're doing it.
2: Well, it's certainly been a big week in science and it's given us all a chance to ponder these amazing philosophical questions. So thank you for helping us navigate that swamp, Phil Plate.
0: <laughs> thank you, Andrew.
1: So, Indre, there's this thing about the universe. When someone explains it to you, physics style, the way Phil does, it has this persistent way of making you feel a little small and insignificant. I don't know. The universe kind of does that to people. But on the other hand, when you wake up and realize wow, we're actually able to decode what happened to quote Phil literally 10 to the minus 35 seconds after the universe was born. Uh, that isn't insignificant. That's pretty significant. And I think I quoted on the last show a line from Carl Sagan who said, we are a way for the universe to know itself. And the research that just came out, I think that is the epitome uh, of the cosmos knowing itself through us. It really shined through and it does bring, I think, some of the, some of the significance back.
2: Yeah, I mean, I usually hate all of these, you know, references or er to the arrogance of humanity that, you know, we are somehow very special and that we have a special place and that each one of us, you know, is is really important. know, I think the data just don't bear that out. But of course, it's devastating to think that that's not necessarily true. But it is kind of mind blowing to think that if let's just say it was true that there's something special about humans because we are able to understand the universe in a way that no other being can, then it's kind of mind boggling that we are such a blip in time. And when we think about the age of the universe, we're only going to be around for, you know, a heartbeat, essentially. Um, you know, it's what makes, makes it very clear when you look at the cosmic calendar as defined or as, as, um, Demonstrated by Carl Sagan and recently Neil deGrasse Tyson on the cosmos, you know, humanity as we know it has just been around for the last few seconds of the cosmic calendar.
1: And yet, if I understand Phil correctly, we are around during the window when we can actually look at and analyze the cosmic microwave background.
2: Well... It's that window, but I think it's more to do with the fact that we now have the tools of looking at. It. I mean, from, from my dis- my conversation with Phil, it's not like that background radiation is going to go away anytime soon. We'll still be able to see that signal, but we just happen to have developed the tools now to understand what it might mean. And uh, I think that I think that I
1: at least understand a little bit better. And I've had physics phobia. I got to confess. I mean, we'll do physics shows and we we try our best. I try my best. And uh, I think that I think that I think you understand it better than me. So I have a little bit of physics phobia. But after this, I really do feel like I understand a great deal more than I did before.
2: Well, I don't know if I understand it better than you, but, you know, it's certainly understand it better now than I did before talking to Phil.
1: Totally. So that's it for another episode, and I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds.
2: To find us online, visit climatedesk.org, and you can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. Inquiring
1: Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis.